Thank you for praying for me while I was in Sacramento. Uh, it was wonderful ministering to the Covenant Church family out there. Um, also, we see some really good news when I walked in today. Uh, I'm always encouraged whenever folks tell me about active ways in which they're inviting their family and friends. And, and some of you have let me know that this particular sermon series, as we study the life of Jesus through the book of Mark, that you're making it a point to invite your fa- family, friends, your coworkers, as we try and discover the real Jesus um, in the gospel. So I want to continue to encourage you to do that. We're probably going to have invitation cards made for this Good Friday and Easter service happening in April. And I want to encourage you to begin to prayerfully think about folks that you could invite um, and give these invitation cards to and be intentional about that. Um, We are entering a sermon series called The Return of the King. And I was heavily influenced by this book called The King's Cross. I want to encourage all of you to get it. Um, It's a wonderful, wonderful resource and accompaniment to the book of Mark. Open your Bibles. Let's just jump right in. By the way, somebody said to me yesterday, so I'm, I'm guessing lots of references to Lord of the Rings and C.S. Lewis. I said, yes, you can expect that. Okay. Following Jesus, Mark chapter 1, verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. Time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. So repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, he said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Verse 18, at once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Verse 20, without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is God's word. To which some of us grew up in cultures where, church cultures where we said, thanks be to God. I love that. Did you know that Starbucks on their website boasts 87,000 drink permutations or drink whatever? Do you guys know that? 87,000 different ways of making drinks. And if you've stood behind one of these people who like to take full advantage, (laughs) you know, James, yes, you know how annoying it can be when they're sitting there for like two minutes trying to describe their drink. We live in a culture where everything is custom made these days. Coffee, shoes, clothes, People have been talking about custom-making kids. I fear for those days when we could choose the gender of the children. We live in a culture where we are custom-making, designing, creating things to suit our own taste. The sad thing is we do that with God. We live in a culture where people seem to be interested in Jesus. I have conversations with Jesus people all the time about Jesus. And it's interesting to me that people are interested in Jesus, interested in pursuing Jesus, learning about Jesus, talking about Jesus, but people want Jesus on their own terms. People want Jesus on their own terms. People almost want a Jesus of their own making. Let me give you an illustration. People I hear say things like this, I believe in a God who accepts everybody regardless of what they believe. 
All roads lead to the same place. And I asked them, well, why do you believe that God is like that? And honest answer for a lot of them is, I believe that God is like that because, well, I want to believe that God is like that. Now, here's the comforting thing about that, I guess, in some ways. That if you believe in a God of our creation, a designer God, if you will, that gets rid of certain problems. But I want to share with you this morning that that God will never change you. That God will never transform you. That God will never heal you of your problems. That kind of Jesus will never truly transform you and change you. Let me give you an illustration or example. Anybody know what it's like for our hearts to condemn us? Anybody know what it's like for your heart to con- You know what I'm talking about? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Your heart ever condemn you, you know? Like, you're a worthless piece of... You hear that voice? You never know your heart condemning you like, who would love you? Even though your heart condemning you like you have no future, your life is a dead end, ever know what it's like for your heart to condemn you? All of us maybe could relate a little bit. Here's my question. If your God is a creation of your own heart, then how do you overcome the voices of your heart that's condemning you if your God is a creation of your own heart? Put it another way. The only God that could overcome the condemnation of your heart is a God who is not a product of your heart. The only God that can overcome the condemnation of your heart is a God who is not a product of your heart. That's the only God that could come to you and say, your heart condemns you, but I say there's no condemnation in Christ. Your heart says you're unworthy of love, but I say in Christ you're eternally loved. The profound need of your heart is a God who's not a product of the profound needs of your heart. Does that make sense? So where do you find a God like that? Scripture tells us it's in the Bible. You go to the Bible. You see the Bible. And when you start reading the Bible without filtering out parts of the Bible about God that make you feel uncomfortable, that you disagree with, you may have believed in a God all your life, but I'm telling you, you will only experience change and transformation when you experience a God, not of your own making, but a God who is there. And there's some things about him that makes us uncomfortable. There's, frankly, things about him that you disagree with. But when you lean into that God and you encounter this God, an untamed God, if you will, that's when you experience life transformation. Anybody been in a personal relationship with anybody you know? A real personal relationship, one in which that person challenges you, contradicts you, offends you, tells you you're wrong. That's a real personal relationship. If you're in a relationship with somebody who never contradicts you, never challenges you, never offends you, never, never challenges you, that's not a real relationship. For whatever reason, that person is hiding their true selves. Well, I don't like a God that I disagree with. I don't like a God who says those things. I don't like a God who does those things. Here's my question. And when do you have a personal relationship with God then? When does that God ever tell you things you don't want to hear? Where does God ever confront you? Where does God ever come and go, that's wrong, that's not right, that's not what you're supposed to do? Where do you ever have a real God? Where do you have a real personal relationship? If the God that you believe in is a God that you're completely and totally and utterly comfortable with because he agrees with everything you agree with. It's only when a God can tell you the things you don't want to be true, you'll be transformed and changed. When he tells you things that are too good to be true, like you're forgiven. Really? 
like he loves you. Really? You'll be resurrected someday. Are you serious? Where do you find that God? You lean hard. and You have a God of your own making? You believe in a designer God? God that you created in your own head? That's why we're going through the book of Mark because the book of Mark paints a portrait of Jesus. Mary, Mark, look Mary, Mark. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first four Gospels of the New Testament were written as the apostles and the original eyewitnesses of Jesus were dying off. So these accounts were written by these people who heard the people that saw Jesus, who saw him live so they could paint for you and give you and me access to the real Jesus, the untamed Jesus, Jesus who is there. And Mark is the first gospel writer of the four. It's the shortest, and we're looking at it. And the passage we looked at today, Jesus speaks for the first time in the gospel of Mark. And here's what he says. After John was put in prison, verse 14, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And in these words, Jesus gets to the essence of the heart of Christianity. Two words, gospel or good news and kingdom. Gospel and kingdom. The English word for gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion, euangelion, which literally means good news. And we've talked about this before. That word was not a Bible word, a church word, a Christian word. That word was just a word that people use. And here's what the word literally meant. The gospel was news of an objective history-changing event that changed everybody's situation, one that everybody needed to respond to. So, for example, in the announcement of the coronation of Octavian as the emperor of Rome, here's what you read in the inscription. This is the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. Gospel is simply a declaration. Caesar has risen to the throne. He's been, he's been crowned the emperor. He's been crowned the king. And heralds and literally evangelists, those who carried the euangelion, ran off and said, news, here's news, Octavian has risen to the throne. Or a military victory. When Greece was invaded by Persia, and everybody said, that's a foregone conclusion. And yet, despite all odds, Greece overcomes Persia. What do they do? They sent heralds or evangelists back to Sparta, back to Athens, and they said, we've won, we've won, and so you're free. We've won, and so you're free. We've won, and so you're free. I could preach on this for the rest of my life and never get sick of it. The gospel is good news rather than advice. Can I get an amen? The gospel is good news. And if you're sitting there going, well, everybody knows that. Not everybody knows it. I preached on Sacramento this weekend. Simple gospel message. You know that new community you guys just totally take for granted. And there were lines of people who came to me and said, I grew up all my life believing that Christianity was essentially religion about advice, about what I needed to do, about all the things that I needed to do to be accepted by God, by and way. You know what I'm talking about. I grew up Catholic. I grew up church. Line up people after people who said, why didn't I hear this in church? To which I go, I don't know. The gospel is news of what has been done for you, not what you must do to be accepted by God. The gospel is news of an event. 
Christ lived for you. Christ died for you. That means that it's not about your past, but about Christ's past. It's not about your performance, but about Christ's performance. It's not about our achievement, but Christ's achievement. We are accepted by God based on what Christ has accomplished for us. To which all God's people said, this is good news. If you're sitting there going, well, I know this. No, you don't. Because if you did, you would not today operate still from the perspective of, well, I obey. Therefore, God loves me. No, we are accepted by Christ, therefore we obey. So many people, your neighbors, your friends, actually think that Christianity is this. Clean yourself up, clean yourself up, then maybe God will accept you. They walk around believing that if you're good enough, God will accept you. And the gospel of Jesus Christ comes along and says, in Christ, he accepts you as you are. Then he cleanses you. Then he changes you. Then he transforms you. This is good news. It wouldn't be good news. It would be terrible news if it was advice. Amen? It would be terrible news if Christianity was do X, Y, and Z and do it really well. Then it would be terrible news. Because not one of us in here is good enough to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and be good enough to be accepted by God. Jesus says, in Christ, you're made righteous and holy. I'm telling you, if this is to a religious person who's grown up all their lives going, I just need to be better, I just need to be more moral, this is just like refreshing rain shower. Like, he accepts me in Christ. I don't have to do stuff. His righteousness, his perfection, his work on the cross for me. It's wonderful, good news. The second reason why the call of Jesus is utterly different from the call. Ah, Excuse me. Water never tasted so good. By the way, I hate it. I'm just kidding. I hate it. When I'm like outed on my birthdays, you know, and I said, Michael, did you do that? Apparently he didn't. It was Christy White, who's not even here to defend herself. Um, And Janice too. Okay. I'm sorry, where was I? Oh, the second reason why the call of Jesus is utterly different from the call you have into religion or to morality is the word kingdom. Everybody say kingdom. Let's, 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 Let's focus. Kingdom. The good news is the kingdom of God is near. And if you go back to Genesis 1 to 3, here's what we find out about why we are in the state we're in. God creates a perfect world in which all relationships are working in harmony. Our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationship with our physical body, psychologically, emotionally, our relationship with all of nature. Shalom, wholeness, flourishing, universal flourishing in every way. Because God is king. Then man and woman decide, we're going to come out from the rule and reign of God. Man and woman decide self-kingship, self-kingship, self-kingship. Result, sin enters, disintegration. And the Bible says the fabric of every part of creation begins to unravel. Our relationship with God, with each other, even our own physical bodies. Death, curse enters into the scene. Everything disintegrates. What did God do? As for Brandon Sterling, I'm like, man, could that be more appropriate? The lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. 
What did God do? What did God do? The wicked witch puts a curse on the land of Narnia. And it's always winter. It's always winter. (laughs) By the way, I'm preparing this in like 82-degree weather in Sacramento. I'm like, it's always winter in Chicago. It's always winter in Chicago. It's always winter, but never Christmas. It's always winter, but never. Sorry. Just needed to get that out. Just vent. It's always cold. It's always winter in the land of Narnia or Chicago, wherever. But the story says, why? Can you relate? I see really hit home for you these days. Aslan is on the move. And he's, of course, the Christ. He's on the move. And he's going to reverse the curse that's been put on Narnia. And the first sign of this restoration of putting everything is right, what? The snow begins to melt. The snow begins to melt. (laughs) Please, the snow begins to melt. (laughs) You know what I realized as I read this? You guys realize, I grew up in Korea. It doesn't matter what cultures you go to. Do you realize there's stories? There are these kinds of things that are in every culture. It's in different languages. And there are the themes of, there's a king. There's a prince who will ultimately return. And he'll kiss us. Or he'll free us from the dungeon. And he'll make everything right. Every single culture has this palpable sense of, the world isn't right. But soon, some king, some prince will return and make everything right. You know what the book of Mark is saying? Jesus is that king. Jesus is that king who will return to make everything right. And listen to this. First time he came in weakness and he died. The second time he comes, he is coming as a lion to restore everything. His first reference to the Lord of the Rings. The hands of the king are what? Healing hands. And so shall the rightful king be known. The Bible says when Jesus returns, everything will be put back to right again. Is that good news, church? Everything will be put back to right. Everything sad will come untrue. Everything will be put to right. That means that if there's some of you that are going, I'm experiencing tremendous amount of loneliness. The Bible says when he returns, you will experience fulfillment and relationship that you've only dreamt about. Any of you really, really fighting to rid this world of evil and justice, the Bible says that when the king returns, there will be no evil. There will be no injustice. Anybody struggling this year because you've lost a loved one or somebody you love is dying of cancer, the Bible says that when he returns, there will be no more pain, no more death, no more tears, no more sickness. Anybody struggling with sin and addiction, anybody going, when will I ever be free? Will I ever know God perfectly? The Bible says when he returns, we will be perfectly set free from sin and know God perfectly. When the king returns, Death will be gone. Suffering will be gone. Evil will be gone. Injustice will be gone. Disease will be gone. Despair will be gone. When the king returns, restoration. Anybody else long for that world? How desperately do you pray, let your kingdom come. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your rule and reign come. This is the reason why, if you're not a Christian here today, you, you would want to be a Christian. Do you know why? 
You're out there fighting for evil and justice and making sure that this world is put back to right. My question to you is, what gives you motivation to do that if your worldview and your perspective is, you know, I don't know what's going to happen at the end. Maybe we'll all burn up or this amount to nothing. The Bible says that the essence of Christianity is when the king returns, he is going to make everything right, everything back together. Because the essence of Christianity is not that someday the Savior will turn and we're going to be whisked to heaven. He is going to put back the world that it we're in. The heart of Christianity is not an escape. It's putting back together the world that we're in. That's why this is good news. Don't ask. Don't ask. If I become a Christian, will it meet my needs? Ask, is it true? Is it true? Because if it's true, it'll meet your needs. It'll meet the deepest, profound needs of your heart. The good news is the kingdom of God is near. Verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, he said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Verse 18, at once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired men and followed him. Immediately, the other word that comes out of Jesus' mouth is he calls us to follow him. This is unheard of in Jewish tradition. Rabbis never called pupils to follow him. Pupils went up to rabbis and said, I want to follow you. I want to learn from you. Will you make me a disciple? What is Mark saying? What is Jesus saying? What is the essence of Christianity? The essence of Christianity is what? We don't have a relationship with Jesus unless he calls you. We don't come to Jesus. Jesus comes to us. We don't seek him. He comes seeking us. We don't reach out to him unless he reaches out to us. John chapter 6, verse 44. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. John 15, 16. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. The Bible says in Romans, in absolutely categorical terms, no one seeks God, not even one. And the only reason why we are here today is because God came and sought us. Is that good news? See, every time I preach on this, i got to tell you something. Every time I preach on this, there are people out there who go, Peter, if you only heard my story, I wasn't seeking God. I wasn't even looking for God. God, good, no. I was running the other way. And the only reason why I'm here is because God in his grace and mercy reached his hands out. And he said, I'm finding you. I'm reaching for you. I'm seeking after you. And that is the only explanation of why. I'm here. Is that anybody else's testimony? The Bible says that the essence of Christian, the heart of the gospel, and you're going to hear this a lot about this sermon series, is that we don't reach out for God first unless God seeks out after us. All the religions of the world say, here's how you reach for God. Here's how you seek God. And the Bible says, listen, you didn't even have the desire nor the capacity to seek after me. So God in his grace and mercy reached out to you. And the only reason why you and I are able to believe is because of his grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. 
What do we learn about following Jesus? Four things, and we're done. One, following Jesus is not optional. Following Jesus is not optional. You notice, first he goes to Peter, Simon, and Andrew. He says, come follow me. And says, at once, which by the way, you find a lot in, Ma- uh, in the book of Mark. Once, immediately, they, they left their nets and followed him. Then he goes to James and John. He says, follow me. And they leave their father, Zebedee, in the boat. This is a patriarchal, family-oriented society. Your family is your everything. You don't have a future without family. You don't have an identity without family. You don't have significance without family. You don't have worth without family. Your family is at the center of everything that happens. For us within a Western individual sort of mindset, it's kind of like, I don't really get that. Some of us grew up in traditional cultures, yes? And our parents come from traditional cultures. You didn't even marry somebody unless they approved. You didn't move away from certain places and they approved. Family is at the center of everything. To us, it's kind of like that. It'd be more shocking if Jesus came and said, kiss your career goodbye. What? Then follow me. Kiss that romantic relationship goodbye. Then come follow me. Kiss that desire for achievement, money, fame, success that you pursue with all your heart. Then come follow me. In this culture, nothing could have been more shocking than to say, leave your family. Come follow. Now, there's another part in the Gospels where Jesus really honed in on this and got to the heart of the issue of what it means to follow him. We find this in Luke 14, verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters... Yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is with the 12. He's with the people who sort of signed up for full-time ministry, if you will. But Jesus doesn't just turn to them and he says, if anyone wants to come follow, he turns to who? He turns to who? He turns to the crowd. He turns to everybody. He turns to all those that are following him and says to them, if anybody wants to have anything to do with me, then you'll carry the cross. What's Jesus saying? He's saying there's no double standard. There is no call to the 12, and then there's a call to the crowd. Are you listening? We think there's a double standard. You know, um, there's the regular followers. <laughs> You're sort of the moderate, but I'm kind of looking for the marine types. You know what I'm talking about? A few good men and women who go, Jesus says there's no moderate and radical. There's no really, really sold all out. And then, you know, I kind of, Jesus says there's one way to follow him. Question. How did normal in Christianity become extraordinary? How did what we read in the Bible goes, that's normal, that's regular, that's what it means to follow Jesus. You and I read the book of Acts, we're like, whoa, that's radical. You know what they would say? That's normal. How do we come to this place? 
Where ordinary followers of Jesus have become extraordinary. How do we come to the place where we even talk like this? You know, they're sort of really radical and all sold out. I have no idea what that even means. All sold out for Jesus. What does that even mean? Whereas me, you know, I just kind of go to church. I go to Bible study. kind of do my... Jesus says no double standard. One way to follow and one way only. It's not optional discipleship. We live in a world of fine print. Fine print. You know what I mean? There's the cost, and then there's a real cost with the fine print. It amazes me. Even the Sacramento Hotel that I stayed at got the bill, right? There's the regular bill, and there's like eight taxes. Eight taxes. State, local, government, you know, tax for using water, tax for, I don't know, looking out the window. There's taxes for everything. Fine print. We live in a culture like, well, that's real. Jesus says there's no fine print. I'm upfront about the cost. What you see is what you get. It's radical. It's all out. It's following me as the supreme desire and passion of your life. My question to you. My question to you, my question to you, and to me, frankly, throughout this sermon series. Are you living a life of radical followership? Or are you going, oh, that's optional. I'm kind of, I used to be when I was in college, like when I had nothing to lose. But now I'm married with kids, so you know. No, 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 I'm going to press you. Has your passion to follow him? cooled. That's for them, not for me. It's for those people, not for me. Let me press you even more. Not only is it not optional, Jesus says, Pastor Mike, I might need another water. Following Jesus, he says, is costly. It's costly. Hate your parents. Hate them. That's absurd. For some of us, that's unnecessary. I already hate them. Okay, that's another sermon in and of itself. Jesus isn't saying you should hate in the sense of being actively hostile to these people. He's the same person. I need to say this. For those of you that are like, I already know that, Peter. I need to press this. Jesus is the same person that says, love your enemies. Jesus is the same person who on the cross says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is not using the word hate in the sense of being actively hostile. In Semitic usage, the word hate could mean actively or comparatively. And the best example is Genesis 29, where it says that Jacob loved Rachel, but he hated Leah. Jacob has two wives. And the Bible says that Jacob loved Rachel. But we know that it wasn't an act of a hostility towards Leah because a few verses later in verse 30 of Genesis 29, it says that Jacob loved Rachel more. That means that when you compare Jacob's love to Rachel, that love for Rachel was so astounding, was so so intense, it was so passionate that his love literally for Leah looked like hate by comparison. And Jesus is saying to you and me, you know what it means to follow me? I want you to love me so fully, so passionately, so intensely, so all-consumingly, so enduringly, that all the other attachments in your life look like hate by comparison. Jesus is literally saying, serving me, 
loving me, knowing me, being with me, following me, has to be such a supreme desire, such passion in your life, such all-coming thing we think in your life, that anything and everything else you do is so far distant that it looks like hate by comparison. Loving me, serving me, following me, knowing me, being with me is such an all-consuming thing in your life that all the other attachments in your life look like hate by comparison. Jesus says, if your perspective in life is if, I will serve you if. I will love you if. I will, I will gladly worship you if. Jesus says, if there's any other ifs in your life, then whatever is on the other side of the if, that's your real God. That's your real passion. That's your real thing that you're following. And I will not be used. I will not be used. Don't make me the means to your life. Make me the end. Do you know that when you and I decided to follow Jesus, church, that we weren't committing to say that Jesus would become the most important thing and Jesus would become the top priority in our lives? Do you know that when you and I decided to follow Jesus, rather than just saying, you are the top priority in my life, when we signed on to follow Jesus, I don't know if you knew, we were signing on to making him the only priority in our lives. The only priority in our lives. Jesus desperately wants you but he will not share you. Jesus desperately wants you. He will not share you. The thing that he looks at you and me and says, I want you to be more passionate about investing your energy and resources in me than your stock portfolio. I want you to surrender more of yourself, more of who you are in me than you do in your own job. Jesus says, hello, I want you to get more passionate and expend more energy worshiping me than you do for March Madness when you go home today. Can I get an amen? Jesus says, I want you to come to me. Don't come to me because I'm relevant. Don't come to me because I'll make you a better person. Don't come to me because I'll make you happy. Come to me for me. Come to me for me. Don't come to me for those other things because if you come to me for those other things, I can't give you those other things. Carlton led us in worship this morning. Come to me because I'm the true king that you're looking for and everything else. Don't go to Jesus. Don't go to Jesus because it's relevant. Don't go to Jesus because he'll make you better. Don't go to Jesus because he'll make you happy. Jesus has come to me for me. Come to me for me, because I'm the true way, the true life, and the true end. Some of us sitting here going, Jesus, I'll kind of fit you in my schedule when I have time. And Jesus says, don't fit me in. Don't fit me into the outline of your life. Don't go, if I have the phrase, I'll make room in my life for Jesus, is nowhere found in Scripture. Jesus says, if you come to me and there's conditions to your obedience, I'll obey you if. He says, that's not true obedience. 
If there's conditions for our surrender, Jesus, that's not real surrender. Real obedience and surrender is, I come to you because you're my true king in whom everything that I'm longing for is found. Is that the Jesus that you follow? Is that the Jesus that you worship? Is that the Jesus you believe in, church? That's why I love the phrase in the Narnia Chronicles. And the little girl asks, Aslan, is he he safe? And what's the answer? Is he safe? Who said anything about being safe? He's the king, I tell you. A good king. A good, good king. Following Jesus is costly. Following Jesus is costly. He says, either you're all in. It's his words. Either you're all in or you're still on the fence. You're all in. Third, following Jesus is a journey. Following Jesus is a journey. This is an excerpt from this book. George MacDonald. George MacDonald wrote a book called The Princess and the Goblin. Tells a story of a girl named Irene. She's eight years old. And Irene is found that in the attic of her house, the fairy grandmother appears every so often, and she brings Irene up, and they talk. And her fairy grandmother makes her wise and teaches her. She's sort of like her guardian. One day she goes up to meet her grandmother, but the grandmother isn't there. So the fairy grandmother appears and gives her a ring with the thread attached to a little ball of thread. And Irene's grandmother says, I'm giving you this ring and the thread attached to it. I'm going to keep the ball of the thread. The little girl says, I don't see it, Grandma. I don't see it. The grandma says, oh, the thread is too fine to see. You could only feel it. Irene begins to feel the thread. She goes, oh, oh, there it is. There it is. And the grandmother says to Irene, now if you ever find yourself in danger, this is what you must do. Take off the ring, put it under the pillow of your bed, lay your forefinger on the thread, and I want you to follow the thread wherever it leads. And Irene says, that's delightful. It will lead me directly to you, grandmother. I know it. So I know that I'm going to be safe. And the grandmother says, yeah, but it may seem like a really roundabout way. Child, you must not doubt the thread no matter where the thread takes you. Remember, while you hold one end, I'm going to hold the other. A few days later, Irene's in bed in the dark and the goblins get into the house and she hears them snarling out in the hallway and she's afraid, but she has a presence of mind to take off a ring. She puts it under the pillow and she begins to feel the thread. And she says, oh, good, good. It's going to take me to my grandmother and to safety, but to her dismay. Instead of taking her up the back steps to the house in the attic, it takes her outside. And she keeps following the thread. She comes to realize it's taking her right toward the cave of the goblins. And when she keeps on following the thread into the cave, it leads her right up to a heap of stones. It's a total dead end. And a thought struck her. She could follow the thread backwards and get out. But the instant she tried to feel it backward, the thread vanished from her touch. Grandmother's thread only worked forward. But forward, it led to a heap of stones. Backwards, it seemed nowhere. Irene burst into a wailing cry, and she threw herself on the stones. And after crying, she realizes, i got to follow my thread. 
She gets up. She decides the only way to follow the thread is to start tearing down the wall of stone. So she starts tearing down the wall. Her fingers are bleeding. She pulls and she pulls. And suddenly she hears a voice on the other side. It's her friend, Curdie, who has been trapped in the goblin's cave. Curdie is astounded. He says, how would you ever find me? She says, my grandmother sent me. I had no idea why she had me come this way, but now I know. Curdie says, great, I'm out. Let's get out of here. He starts to go back up out of the cave. But the thread keeps going down into the cave. Curdie says to Irene, wait, 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 wait. Where are you going? That's not the way out. That's not where I couldn't get out. And Irene says, I'm sorry, but we have to follow the thread. This is the way my thread goes, and I must follow it. I know it doesn't make any sense, but if I'd given up on it before, I would have never rescued you. I must follow my thread, whatever I do. I must follow my thread, whatever I do. What is Jesus saying? Anybody know what it's like to follow Jesus to a seeming utter dead end? Anybody know what it's like to follow Jesus and go, where, where are you taking me? Where, where, where are we going? Where, 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 where is this going to lead to, Jesus? And what does Jesus say? What is the call of the gospel? The call of the gospel is you must follow the thread. It doesn't work backwards. Jesus comes to those who say, I think I want to follow you. And he says the audacity to say this, if you follow me, if you follow me, there are times when I'm going to take you to seemingly what looks like a dead end. And you might have to get your hands bloody. Anybody know what that's like? You know what that's like. And Jesus says to you and me, following me might do that. Think about what this meant for his followers. Think about the disciples of Jesus who he said, come follow me. Do you think they had any idea what they were following? Heck no. Read the gospels. They're thinking, we're going to ride his coattails to prime cabinet positions in Rome. That's what they think they're following him for. And within a matter of a few months, what? They're failing him. They're betraying him. They're even dying for him. And Jesus says to you and me today, for anyone that wants to follow me, you'll have to obey. You'll have to do my will. There is no turning backwards. This only works, but what if it leads to a dead end? There are going to be times when following him is absolutely going to seem like a dead end. Why? Because that's the only way that Jesus could save us. What do you mean? Jesus encountered the absolute dead end. Peter, how do we do this? How do we follow Jesus? How do we not go backwards? I'll tell you exactly how. It's not. Try harder. Jesus is never asking you to do anything that he didn't do. When he asked the disciples to leave his father, Jesus had left his father's throne. When Jesus asked you and me to leave and abandon our father, Jesus says, I did and infinitely more. 
What do you mean infinitely more, Peter? On the cross, Jesus loses for all of eternity in that moment of death the love of his Father as Jesus descends into hell. Do you know why you and I could follow the thread to dead ends? Do you know why you and I could follow dead ends? Because Jesus followed the thread to hell. So that when you and I follow the thread, listen to this, the gospel, when you and I follow the thread, we run right into heaven and the bosom of our heavenly Father. But what if his kingship crushes me? What if I follow him, give my all, and his kingship, his kingship will not crush you because he was crushed for you? But Peter, what if I follow the thread and I descend into Jesus, descended into hell? Jesus descended into giving his all so that you and I, if we follow the thread, would turn into great people who would become fishers of men. See, you have to understand, and I have to understand The reason why this is the way to journey, and I'm going to talk more about this upcoming weeks. The reason why the journey takes directly to the cross is this. Jesus looks at you and me and says, your kingship, my kingship, is utterly filling us with self-pity, utterly killing us with self-absorption. And Jesus says, we have no shot to become fishers of men because we are consumed with me, 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 me. And Jesus says, I want to heal you of that. I want to heal you of your selfishness. I want to heal you of your self I want to heal you of your self-kingship. And the only way to do that is to take you on a journey. Ultimate death. Death to ourselves so that there will be a resurrection. Follow the thread. It doesn't work backwards. Follow the thread. And trust that where he leads you is so that you would become a glorious creature who he says I could use to make fishers of men and women, to bring them from the land of darkness into the land of light. The challenge for us, Cece, come on up. The challenge for us is that throughout the book of Mark, and we're going to come back to this again and again, the words immediately, right away, immediately, right away, is found throughout the Gospels. Here's what I mean by that. The challenge for you and me today, 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 is that this call that Jesus gives, the invitation on Jesus' card to follow him, the RSVP has one date on it. It says today. That means that you and I, sitting here today, sitting here today, Sitting here today, Hebrews 13, 15, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. My question to you is, what is keeping you from saying today? It's when I go all in and follow him today. It's when I go all in and follow him today. Do not harden your hearts if you hear his voice today. Some of you said, well, I'm going to do it tomorrow. That was yesterday, which means technically yesterday, today. Following Jesus is not optional. Following Jesus is costly. Following Jesus is a journey. Following Jesus requires the gospel. Father, we gather here today. And God, this challenge and this call, uh, this challenge and this call, um, it's hard. 
It's demanding. It's scary. It's frightening. And frankly, for many of us, myself included, there are days when we'd rather not. There are days when we would rather not. And Father, my prayer this morning, this Sunday, is that we would not create you and create the message of you, Jesus, into something that might seem more palatable, that might seem more digestible, but that we would stare at your call, your challenge, your invitation as is. And God, whatever is keeping us from an all-consuming, all-passionate pursuit of you, whatever is keeping us from an all-consuming, all-in-passionate pursuit of you, remind us today that you are our true king. Remind us today that you are our true life. Remind us today that you are our true way. Follow the threat, church. Follow the threat, church. He followed his into hell so that you could follow yours into the bosom of your heavenly father, into greatness, into becoming fishers of men and women. Do not turn to the left. Do not turn to the right. Do not turn backward. Follow the thread. Follow the thread.